Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I'm Roberta Glass, and you're listening to my True Crime Report. My guest today is Todd Nielsen. He's a documentary filmmaker and a graduate of Full Sail University. Todd now works in Manhattan as a film editor. And he's joining me today to talk about his powerful documentary, The Last Stop, about the Elan School. So welcome, Todd Nielsen. Thank you so much for agreeing to this interview. My pleasure. So what was Elan? So Elan was a uh, behavioral modification boarding school, uh, inpatient uh, program for kids that were having trouble in life, you know, anything from drugs to family issues to crime from, you know, something as little as, you know, petty theft all the way up to, you know, there were kids there that had committed murder. And it was a way to, I would say, almost an experimental way to rehabilitate uh, troubled kids. Yeah, your film starts with the alumni talking about the details of their behavior that landed them in the lawn. Why did you make that choice? Whether you like it or not, everybody was sent to Elan for some reason or another, whether it was, you know, looking back, whether it was an invalid reason, you know, kids could be sent there for as little as just like smoking a joint, you know what I mean? Uh, If their parents were scared enough that the kid was going to, you know, go down a bad road, then, you know, Elan would take them. So, you know, I thought it was important that everybody kind of explains what led up to their initiation into the program. And also to contrast that at the end of the film with how they did afterwards. It's very interesting because uh, some of the reasons some of those kids were in there was pretty serious, like burning down a house or apartment or so. It's a little bit different because the troubled teen narrative is usually I didn't do anything or I didn't do much. So I thought it was kind of different take. And and that's one thing that, you know, people from Elan and these institutions are very honest. You know what I mean? I mean, mean, to a degree, they're they're very honest and they'll tell you about, you know, what their life was like before Elan. Um, And, you know, most people, you know, they don't deny that they had trouble. Uh, Was Elan the solution? Well, you can decide that for yourself. But yeah. Yeah. How was Elan sold to kids and parents versus the reality of it? You know, just even a quick glance at the brochure, I would say it's very watered down. You know, they don't really explain how the program works to parents or to kids. The program is never really explained. It's just that, you know, this is a place where your kid will have emotional development, um, will be able to, to get help for the issues that they have, and will, you know, hopefully, you know, flourish afterwards. You know, we'll reconnect families, we'll get them off drugs, we'll put them on the right path. Um, you know, we've helped, you know, 80 percent of our of our uh, graduates have gone on to live successful lives, gone to college, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
a big thing about my film is I wanted to explain how the program actually worked, and I'm sure we'll get into it, but the actual dynamics of the program, the mechanics behind it, it's, it's never really, you know, in the literature, in the, in the propaganda, it's never really explained, you know, how the place actually works. You know, they say things like, you know, peer pressure, but it's, it's just a very glossed over uh, explanation of what actually happens inside the houses. Yeah, it reminded me of Private Benjamin, where she's, they offer her this, you know, picturesque view of the army, and then she gets there, and she's the same thing with Alain. They said they had horseback riding. And, yeah, uh, yeah. Right by a lake. Yeah, yeah. right by a lake, and, and they have basketball courts, and, and the kids get to go out. It's definitely sold as almost like a, a, a nice getaway, almost a camp, a camp adventure. What's an Alain snatch? So an Elan Snatch is obviously most kids are not willing to go to a program in the middle of Maine. You know, by the way, this place was like literally in the woods, in the middle of the woods in Maine. It was in Poland Springs, which is where uh, the water comes from, the Poland Springs water. We were actually right next to the uh, the factory. It was just like a few, like a few miles away. So it was literally in the middle of the woods, in the middle of nowhere. And obviously, if, you know, you're a parent, you go up to your kid and you say, hey, you know, you're going to this program in the middle of the woods and it's going to be tough and whatever, blah, 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 blah. No kid's going to want to go to that. You know, some kids obviously went willingly and, you know, they were either, you know, kind of conned into going there. But so in Elan Snatch is they send what's called an escort service. And this is how I got brought there, essentially wake you up in the middle of the night and, you know, two big guys. And they say, hey, you know, you're coming with us. And if you try to run, they'll grab you, they'll tackle you and they throw you in a van and they drive you up to Maine. What do you think the purpose of that is? I mean, obviously it has a practical purpose to get you there. Yeah, I mean, I mean that's that's the purpose. Obviously, like I said, no kid's going to want to go to a <laughs> boarding school in the middle of the woods, uh-huh. uh, you know, away from their friends, away from their family. Uh, you know, no nobody wants to do that. Right. So this obviously is the forceful way to get you to go. And uh, it's 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 honestly very scary. You know, I, I'll explain this you know later on. But I look back at my online experience, and that part of it is something that that haunts me most of all. You know, because it's so it's so kind of violating in a way. Just you know, you're laying in your bed, which is where you're supposed to be safe, sleeping, and then you're just woken up by two bearded, big, burly guys, and they strong arm you into a van. I thought it was like a you're psychologically indoctrinated, like right away. Fear becomes the primary connection to the place. Exactly, yeah. Before even getting there, you're getting a taste of, of what this is going to be like. So can you talk about the hierarchy of Elan? What is a strength and what is a non-strength? Essentially, the way the Elan program works is it's the house. It's First of all, you're in what's called a house. And it, uh, it's just a, it's a plain building. And in each house, there were t- two houses when I was there. Uh, Alan three and Alan eight. There have been as many as uh, maybe five houses, six houses running at, at one time. You know, back in the day when Alan, you know, was in its prime. But when I got there, there were two houses, and I was in Alan eight. Alan three was the other house, uh, and each house has a bunch of offices in it. You know, the business office, the communications office, the expediters, and each office basically has a role. So you have the expediters, who is the they're, they're the security force. Uh, you know, the service crew the, are the janitors. The communications office is in charge of essentially news, you know, and, and bringing the outside world in. The business office is in charge of paperwork. Um, so each office works together to make basically function, you know, function as a community. It's like a tiny little microcosm of society. 
Um, and everybody has a position in this house, in, in each office. And you work your way up through these positions to eventually graduate. And, you know, you start out, you could be, you know, you're sweeping floors, you're dusting, and then you move up and you're in charge of a small group of people. You know, it's called a ramrod. That's the next position. And, you know, you're in charge of a small little group of people. It's like a foreman almost. Then you go to expediter, you're a security guard, then department head, you, you head a crew, and then a coordinator, you head a business. So the, the hierarchy was a way to kind of teach you to slowly gain responsibility, especially gain responsibility for other kids at the school, you know, as you move through the ranks over, you know, the standard two-year enrollment period that you were there. Can you talk about some of the rules for a non-strength, someone who just come in? You know, it would be easier to give you a list of things you were allowed to do because, I mean, there was quite literally a rule for everything. Like, you know, short of breathing, there was a rule for everything. What you were allowed to wear, what you were allowed to have, you know, with you on your person, you know, what you were allowed to carry around, who you were allowed to talk to. I mean, you, you think of anything, any dynamic, you know, picking up garbage off the floor, you know, you need permission to do that. You need permission to do anything. Everything had a rule to it and a way of going about it. Uh, you know, if you wanted to talk, if you were a non-strength and you wanted to talk to another non-strength and non-strengths obviously were either people who were new to the program or who uh, had gotten fired or shot down from one of their jobs. You know, if you had worked your way up to the program and you were a coordinator, you could get shot down back to worker. And now you are a non-strength and a non-strength. You can't be in a room alone. You know, you're not allowed to go to the bathroom alone. You're not allowed to go into an office alone. You're not allowed to pretty much be alone at any point. You're not allowed to talk to other non-strength without a strength being aware of you. So if I wanted to talk to somebody else, I would have to say, hey, strength, come here. Uh, can you listen to our conversation? We called it being aware. Can you be aware of us? And that person would listen to your conversation, you know, to make sure you weren't talking about running away or whatever, doing anything bad. So you have very, very little freedom as a non-strength. Uh, you know, you basically just had to follow along with what everybody else did. And... One of the rules was that you weren't allowed to listen to any authorized music. What was that about? Well, you weren't allowed to listen to music. You know, people did listen to music, but the music was, you know, you couldn't listen to music that had drug references in it. Okay. Uh, that was about Throw violence. Throw out the entire rock and roll catalog. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, uh, you know, as you worked your way up, you were given more privileges. You know, if you wanted to listen to certain music, okay. If you were like, you know, a, a security, if you worked your way up to security or you worked your way up to, you know, being a department head, you were given these freedoms, these privileges, you know, back. But yeah, you know, as a new resident, you know, that first sort of few months that you're there, uh, yeah, you can't listen to to the music that you want to, and you know you're very you're very restricted. And that included books, magazines, you know anything that could be considered, you know any anything that would make you dwell on your past. You know what I mean? If it's about drugs, you know you were not allowed to listen to that or even talk about it uh, to a degree. Uh, so yeah, you're very very restricted with what you could have. No computers, no phones. Obviously, you know that should be a given. You know your your life was very much set out for you. How is Alon different than, say, like a military school or some other kind of high regimented environment or school? The program is very much adopted from those OTC kind of programs, you know, like those military kind of a lot of those programs that kids that kids get sent to that are kind of um, officer training camps that are supposed to teach emotional growth and supposed to teach you how to be a, a kind of a responsible adult. The thing with Alon, though, is Alon was very big. 
that that kind of divided it between those programs. Alan was very big at getting into your psyche almost. They they brought up all your past issues and everything was on the table to everybody. There was no privacy. So, you know, girls that had either been, you know, maybe molested by their parents, you know, that was all out in the open. And they really dug into that. You know, it's not like military school where, you know, you have to, you know, vigorously train and, you know, be taught how to be, you know, stoic and, and Pick yourself authoritative. up by your boots. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. This this was way more psychological and and they broke you down psychologically and and in a way that really cut deep because they, they really targeted your issues and who you were. And the goal was really to make you feel bad about yourself and then, you know, and to kind of crush your, your value system and, and the ideals which you held as a teenager and to sort of usher in what they thought were positive uh, aspects to being, you know, an adult. I think that's essentially what, what really divides it from a, from a military training academy is this was way more, way more psychological and intimate. Part of Elan was this kind of 70s-based Scream therapy, group therapy, mm-hmm. uh, and then yeah. school and, and all your chores. How did it all, what was a typical day like or how did it work? I mean, the typical day was basically you wake up, you clean the dorms. Everybody has a job to clean the dorms. And then, and this, this was very different for, you know, depending on what your position is, it was very different all around. But from a non-strength standpoint, from somebody who just came into the school, um, you know, basically you, you wake up. You clean your dorm for like an hour or so, and then you hit the floor, and the floor is the dining room. And that's where basically all the action is throughout the day in the dining room. Uh, And then you hit the dining room, you have breakfast, and then they have a morning meeting, which is where they bring issues in front of the house. You know, who's not cleaning the bathrooms, who's not picking up, you know, their garbage or who's leaving their stuff out. You know, does anyone want to make any announcements about how they've grown, about struggles that they've had? It's basically, you know, a big... It's like a big meeting about, you know, how the state of the house is and how everybody is kind of individually doing. Uh, And then we would go into cleaning. You know, there was a lot of cleaning throughout the day. People were always cleaning and the house never got cleaner. It was still a a dirty mess, but we were always cleaning. Uh, And then you would go to groups. Eventually you'd have lunch and then you would go to groups. And that's where you would have your encounter therapy. You know, I'm sure we'll get into that screaming at at other kids and and yelling at them about how horrible they are and trying to reconcile your your differences. Uh, And then you went to dinner and then we had like three hours of school at night. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then after school, you went to the dorms and and went to bed. And sometimes in the middle, they would throw in what's called a general meeting, uh, which is sort of considered like the worst of the worst punishment. That's if you did something really bad, like tried to run away or push somebody or, you know, you did something that was really bad, Um, you know, stole something, you know, everybody would get up out of their chairs, you know, all these kids would rush you, scream in your face about all these obscenities and how horrible of a person you are and how you deserve to die and all this and that. And then they would sort of, like I said, kind of dig into your issues and and how, how whatever you did, whatever horrible thing you did, or, you know, it probably wasn't horrible, it was probably just, you know, stealing a carton of milk or something or drinking an extra carton of milk. Uh, how that correlates to your your issues in life. What's a haircut? Everybody, so there was there was what was called a book. That book contained every incident, every uh, broken rule that happened throughout the day, and that was recorded by the expediters. Each expediter, the security guards, had a post throughout the house, uh, kind of like a security guard, and you know they they would stand by the doors to make sure people don't run away, and they would watch everybody and see what things, you know, see if they did something bad or something like that, or see, you know, they left their, their, their book at the table and walked away from it or something. 
And they would write that in the incident book. Okay, you know, Johnny uh, left his school book on the table and, and walked away from it or something like that. You know, he's irresponsible. Um, and every, everybody was reporting on everybody constantly. You had to. If you, didn't, if you didn't book incidents, if you didn't have a quota filled out, then you got yelled at. So, you know, it was to teach you to hold people responsible. Um, and then you would get brought into a room. You would get read your incident. You know, did you leave your book at the table? And you'd either say yes or no. Most people just said yes, because if you said no, then they'd still yell at you anyway. And then they would go through four people would sit in this dealing crew. It's shaped as a horse crew. And they would scream at you about why what you did was wrong. There's a part of your documentary I didn't understand. You talked about a general meeting and the alumni said, if it's an injustice, deal with it. Is the injustice what you did or what they did? Meaning right. you were falsely so, I mean, that, accused? I was confused. Right. So, so uh, an injustice in Elan was basically, was basically if you, um, let's say, uh, let's say there's, okay, so, so during the 70s, like, you can actually smoke at Elan. You can smoke cigarettes during the 70s, 80s. So let's say there's an ashtray in the middle of the table. And this is why, this is what I'm saying. Like, like mostly anything you do throughout the day could be somehow correlated into a broken rule or a, an, an issue with the way that your, your mind works. And let's say, you know, you're sitting there, you don't even smoke and the ashtray is filling up and um, you ignore it. You don't empty the ashtray. OK, you get booked for it, for ignoring the, this full ashtray of, of cigarette butts. Well, wait a minute. You know, I, I, I don't smoke. Uh, it's not my responsibility. Nobody else did it. Why, why am I getting booked for this? Why am I getting in trouble for this? Well, that's an injustice. And you're taught, you know, look, throughout life, there's many injustices. You might get pulled over by a cop, you know, for, for going a mile over the speed limit or, or something, something stupid. You know, uh, just the other, just, it was funny, me and my, my girlfriend were, were, we were actually on scooters and we were driving down the road and she got, she got pulled over for not having a helmet on. I didn't have a helmet on either, but she got in trouble. So that's kind of like the idea of an injustice and that you're taught to just deal with it. So you get blasted for it anyway. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. I think really what separates a lot is the amount of physical violence. I mean, what was the ring? Uh, so the ring was kind of gone by the time I got there. They got rid of it in, I think, the, the early 2000s. But the ring was essentially if you committed an act of uh, violence, you didn't even have to commit an act of violence. If, if you're really not getting with the program and you're not participating, you're constantly getting general meetings or you're getting thrown in the corner. The corner is exactly what it sounds like. You sit and you face a corner for sometimes months on end if you, if you just continue to act out. If they have enough of you, if you're still just acting out, you know, if you do anything, but it's supposed to be for kids who act out violently, but it's, it's not, that's not, a, that wasn't always the case. They would put you in a ring and the ring was, you know, it was a human ring. It was just a bunch of people standing in a circle and you would put boxing gloves on and you would essentially fight a resident that was bigger than you, the house champion, the one standing up for good, the Elan way, you know, uh, you know, dignity and, 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 you know, pr productivity, you know, everything that's right. And you would fight him. And after he got tired, they would send in another champion and another one and another one until you were beat down. You never won. You know, the, the, the goal was to teach you that you're not going to win. You know what I mean? We're going to we're going to to break you. So, you know, and everybody, you know, in the circle would be screaming, you know, rooting and, and rooting for the house champion and yelling at you and pushing you around, pushing you back into the ring. Very much like a fight club. I was very surprised by the theatricality of it. Oh, in yeah. that they announce this on in one corner we have the bully and on the other hand yeah. the hero you know the hero 
What do you think the purpose of that was? Yeah, no punching below the belt, you know, you know, you know, these are the rules exactly. And then they would go ding. I mean, the 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 goal was to to kind of make it into this big thing to kind of teach you that, you know, you've you've really messed up. You know, I mean, you didn't get to this, but there were also kids walking around in costumes. There were costumes which were learning experiences, which is basically means punishment, uh, given out to kids that, you know, fit what they did. So let's say a girl talked to a boy that was about something that was non-functional. You know, they were just laughing together. Very bad. So, you know, a girl could get dressed as like a hooker, you know, and carry around a sign that said like, you know, West 42nd Street or whatever, you know, to, to mimic the, the hookers and you know, that would be on 42nd Street back in the day. And they would walk around like this. And there were people dressed as dogs and there were kids dressed as, you know, hulks or Terminator, you know, pimps or whatever. I mean, it was very theatric. It was it was it was very bizarre. I, I almost see it like a kind of like an Alice in Wonderland thing. You know, you walk into if you're a new resident, you walk in, you see people dressed in all these weird costumes, boxing rings, people getting screamed at. I mean, it, it's bizarre. Yes, a lot of these things did kind of go away after a while when, you know, Alana kind of had to start answering for its bizarre methods. And they slowly started scaling back and scaling back and scaling back. But yeah, it was very theatrical and it was it was very, you know, everything, everything that happened was always a big deal. Yeah, there was a story of a guy who said, can we get a dog for the house? And that was yeah. his big crime. It goes further than that. You know, he was a kid. Uh, Kevin, he was a kid that never really participated in the program in a, in a positive way. You know what I mean? Always getting in trouble, always, always getting yelled at, you know, never doing what he was supposed to do, constantly shot down or fired from his job, having to scrub floors, uh, which is what you did when you got shot down or, or you did something bad at your job. You got fired, you got shot down, you had to scrub floors all day. Um, so that that was what he was constantly getting getting in trouble for. And eventually he was like, you know, let's get a dog. And they thought that, you know, he what audacity for this kid, for somebody who's not participating in the program, for somebody who's not, you know, doing what they're supposed to do, growing, you know, changing their life. He has the audacity to ask for a dog. OK, well, you know what? You'll be the dog now. You know, you're, and they dress him up as a dog and he had to walk around on all fours and eat out of a dog dog dish. It's just amazing. The brain behind all this, uh, Joe Ritchie. Yeah. Quite a colorful character. Who was he? Joe, Joe, so Joe w went to a program called Daytop, and Alan is very much modeled off the Daytop program. In fact, Daytop is still around. Uh, it's actually here in New York. There's a Daytop. Uh, there's a bunch on the East Coast. And the program is very similar, except in Daytop, you can leave. You, can, you don't have to stay there. You can leave. And, you know, in Alan, you could not leave. If you tried to leave, you get tackled and dragged back into the house. Uh, so the program is very similar. And he was a graduate of Daytop back in the day. And Daytop also came from Synanon, if you want to even dig further. Synanon was the start of these types of programs. And so he graduated from Daytop, and he wanted to form – he did so well at the program and, and became a staff member there that he wanted to open his own institution. And that's where Alan came. So he moved to Maine. He opened Alan with uh, an, another doctor that he had, he had met along the way, Dr. Gerald Davidson. Uh, and then and they opened the lawn. And Joe was, you know, growing up, Joe was kind of a street thug. You know, he was, you know, always getting in trouble, stealing out of out of trucks and, you know, selling stuff on the street. He was just, you know, you're, you're sort of a street thug. And he brought that mentality into a lawn that sort of, you know, you're not going to mess with me. You know, uh, you know, he had that kind of, you know, Italian, you know, attitude about him. You know, you know, you're, you're not going to mess with me. Who do you think you are? So he brought that attitude into a lawn, that sort of street thug mentality. 
And he was a character. I mean, he wore fur coats. He wore gold chains. He had a, like a fedora. He drove a Rolls Royce. I mean, he was very, he was like such a grand person. Um, and he kind of walked with like a, a swagger. And, you know, he considered himself the god of therapy. That's what he always told everybody. He was like, you know, the god of therapy. He was dead by the time I was there. He died in 2001, I believe. But, you know, the stories I hear about him are, are quite crazy. He ran for governor, lost. But, uh, and he you know. got a lot of his money from suing Key Bank for denying him a credit line because he yeah, or, yeah. Or, or shutting off his credit line because they thought he was connected to organized crime. And yeah, they were, yeah. His rights yep. were violated. I mean- lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Yeah, there were rumors going around that he was involved with organized crime and that he was responsible for, like, the murder of somebody like that or, or, some, or some other... Uh, I don't I don't know the the true validity of whether or not he was involved in organized crime. I've heard mixed things. Um, I don't I don't really think he was, but they thought he was involved in organized crime and they shut off his credit line. He sued and successfully won and he won about 15 million dollars. It's a lot of money. That's not the way he made all his money. I mean, Alan, they were charging when I was there. It was and I'm sure it's relative throughout the years. When I was there, they were charging fifty four thousand dollars a year. And that, at the time, that's more expensive than Harvard. That's, that's a lot of money for, per head. Uh, so, you know, he was bringing in bank. He was, making, he was making a ton of money off each kid. And, you know, there were kids that stayed there for up to like five years, you know. So he, he, he made a lot of money because he was a good businessman. And, you know, he also successfully sued Key Bank. But, you know, regardless of that, he was still making a lot of money off alone. And the place was a, was a dump. I mean, it was just like it was a broken down lodge in the middle of of the woods i mean he couldn't have spent that much money maintaining the place so you have to wonder where all that money went who was overseeing alon federally or state-wise there was none i mean there, there was really no oversight because because this institution and there still is very little oversight because these programs are so uh obscure and because what they do isn't really like you know it's it's not nothing's defined they're not a school they're not a uh, a military academy they're not a rehab they are their own sort of beast uh, you know they're called behavioral modification centers and there's really no law in the books for how these places are supposed to operate so they can just basically do whatever they want to do you know and and sort of get away with it and you know that's changing but uh, you know, it does need to change faster. I'm just interested that the troubled teen industry has kind of been wiped out of the history of uh, America. It was really big in the 80s. I mean, Nancy Reagan brought Princess Diana to say, I don't, can't remember if it was straight ink or kids. Yeah, it was straight. Yeah. Straight. Why do you think these kind of places are so popular with Americans? One of the problems with this industry is that it's, it operates very much underground. And, you know, and that I think one of the issues is that has to do with the stigma that's placed on mental illness. One of the people in the documentary, Maya Salovitz, makes a very good point that, you know, if your kid has cancer, 
you're going to rally your network. You're going to go to your, uh, you know, your cousins and, and, you know, you're going to go to Memorial Sloan Kettering. You're going to, you're going to reach out and everybody's going to feel so sorry about it. And, and, you know, Oh, I hope, I hope he's okay. I hope he gets better. And, and you're going to put it on Facebook that your, your kid has cancer and needs help. If your kid has a mental issue or, or some sort of uh, social issue, you don't want people to know about it. You know, there's a stigma. You want, you, you're going to look around online in the middle of the night, trying to find solutions. And that's where these, these ads come out, you know, you know, teen rehabilitation, teen, teen camp, we'll, we'll fix your kid for you. Just send them to us. So it's, it, it really, you know, the, the mental illness um, stigma, it's, it's very dark and people just don't want to, you know, really talk about it. And I think that's how these programs thrive is they're able to kind of stay under the radar because of that stigma. Alon was not without controversy. You know, in 1975, Illinois removed some children from there. There were critical articles. There was a uh, unauthorized biography of Joe Ritchie released in the, the 90s called Duck in a yeah. Raincoat. Why was Alon kind of immune to these criticisms? Why did it go on for so long, you know, un, really unscathed? I think, I think part of the reason is because Joe was so good at what he did. Um, you know, if some if somebody came out in the newspaper and said, "Hey, you know, Alan is doing these abusive things," he would say, "Oh no, it's a conspiracy. They're trying to tear me down. They're being racist against me because I'm Italian, and they think I'm 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 part of the mob." And you know, he would it just start throwing these. The, he would distract people. He was very good at this, and he and it would get them off his back. And also because I mean, again, this place was in the middle of the, of the woods in Maine, in the middle of nowhere. You know, Joe wasn't that big of a figure. You know what I mean? I mean, people just didn't know it was there and they didn't really care to a degree. And you could also write it off by saying, oh, well, the kids there, they're criminals, they're drug addicts, you know, they're 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 dangerous. You know, we need to put them somewhere. And isn't it more humane to put them here than put them in jail? So so people could kind of rationalize it like, all right, you know, well, it's unorthodox, it's bizarre, but these kids need help. So I guess I guess it's OK as long as nobody's dying. Uh, you know, a lot of this stuff, you know, it's not going to fly today, you know, as time goes on. And, you know, of course, there's a lot of institutions still out there, but uh, it's we're starting to crack down on it, which I think is good. <laughs> it's just I'm smiling listening to uh, Joe Ritchie's your description of Joe Ritchie's defense of himself, because it's so similar to criminal defense PR I don't know. What do you call it? I, I don't know. I'm just accused all the time of if I think uh, someone's guilty of being a racist or. It's, it's so. very, you know, it was very, you know, he he was very good at that, at just, you know, changing the course. You know, I mean, the whole thing with Key Bank, you know, he made it about, you know, how, you know, that people were thought he was an Italian and how he was, you know, they were being prejudiced towards him. You know, couldn't be further from the truth. I mean, this guy was was like uh, he was like a boss. You know what I mean? I mean, he you got to give the guy credit. He was a good businessman and, and he ran the place with an iron fist and he thought very highly of himself. And he did really well. I mean, to drive a Rolls Royce, to have a, a big mansion in Falmouth, which is, a, you know, a pretty uh, wealthy area of Maine. You know, he he did really well for himself and he knew it. And but he also knew how to manipulate people and uh, and he knew how to get his way. And he did. Yeah, you even suggest in this film that he might have been a, a sociopath. Oh, definitely. He was a sociopath. I mean, everything, again, I didn't know the guy, but everything I hear about him, all the interviews I see with him, I mean, he's so full of himself and so, you know, uh, confident in his ability to either, you know, use therapy on kids or be governor. Again, he wanted to be governor. Um, he was obsessed with himself and, you know, it worked for him. One of the um, things brought up in your film is Michael Skakel's 
confession that he killed Martha Moxley at a uh, lawn. The film seems skeptical of that confession. Why? Michael Skakel, I don't, I, I don't follow the case that much. I don't, you know, it's not really, it, I'm not really concerned about it. I don't know whether he did it or whether he didn't do it. I haven't followed it that much. The only way I can correlate it to Alan, and I'm not going to comment, I, you know, I'm not going to take a stance on it. Okay. But the way, the way in which it, it connects to Alan is that when it came out that Michael had gone to Alan and that he had admitted this at Alan, he needed to put up a defense as to why he said that. And, and then everything about how Alan's methods worked and how, you know, the abuse that went on there and the, the ring and the screaming and all that stuff, the sign wearing, the costumes, it all started to come out that Alan was doing this. And it was in the newspapers everywhere. And that's what started to really affect the way Alan worked. They needed to really start explaining their actions and kind of start to scale it back. You know, Joe couldn't handle that. He can run Maine to a degree. He can, you know, because he was connected to the senators there. But when it started getting to New York and around the world, because the Michael Skakel case was big, when it started getting around the world that this was happening, he couldn't really hide it anymore. So Alon started to, it was in the spotlight now, and, you know, things started to have to change. It's interesting. Because from an outside, if you don't know what general meeting involves or or how that confession came out, it sounds very convincing that he confessed at Alon and, you know. Yeah, in therapy, but they don't say what therapy is. (laughs) You know what I mean? I mean, getting beaten in the ring until you admit that you killed a girl. I mean, that's a, a coerced confession. That's not admissible in court. You know, and that that's why I'm not taking a stance on whether he did it or not. I, I'm knowing Elon myself, I would have admitted to anything in that program to get out of the punishments that that were coming up, that were bearing down on you. You know what I mean? If it, if it, if they were going to keep punishing me and keep throwing me in the corner and giving me a general meeting until I admitted that I killed a girl, I might break and admit that I did it. Yeah, it's it's quite different than the press that he's walking around Elon saying I'm a Kennedy. I can get away yep. with murder. And of course, you know, it's quite different. I mean, it's pretty much akin to like confessing after being waterboarded or something. Similar. That's exactly what it is. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. I mean, and, you know, from what I recall with that, Joe did come out and say, no, 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 I don't know what, what these kids are talking about. He didn't confess anything. He Joe actually said that because he knew, you know, the pressure that was going to bear down on him if he did take a stance against Michael Skakel, who was very wealthy, who had a very good law law team. And I'm sure that team was about ready to tear Alon apart to nullify that that admission. And they did. Michael Skakel's out now. You know, there was nothing he could do for that. But it did open the doors as to Alon being investigated, people wanting to know what was going on in this weird place in the middle of Maine. He had to start answering some questions. It's interesting. And Phil Williams Jr. died from what was thought at the time as a brain aneurysm after being in the ring uh, in 1982. And yep. Maine police started reinvestigating in 2016. What do you know about that? Well, they never investigated in the first place. <laughs> so okay. it wasn't a reinvestigation. It was a new investigation. Thank you. So, yeah, uh, there was a, a boy named Phil Williams who was sent to Elan by the state. I believe uh, his father was, like, indicted for murdering his mother, something like that, or uh, being a, a, an accessory to murder of his uh, wife. Uh, so Phil got sent there. And again, another kid that just, you know, didn't want to participate in the program, you know, was very rebellious. And eventually he got put in the ring and, uh, you know, beat up very good. And it turned out he had a, a medical issue and had a brain aneurysm. You know, they punched him so hard in the head that, you know, he there was an aneurysm and he later died in the hospital. 
Now, the problem with that is Elan doesn't really screen for these issues. And especially kids that, that are sent by the state, that are wards of the state, like they don't care about these kids, you know. And Phil was complaining about headaches throughout his stay there. And he was complaining about headaches after the ring and, you know, these unbearable headaches. And they just said, you know, you're lying. You're not you're, you're just trying to, to get over on people. Well, you know, eventually it led to his death and he did die. And, and I, you know, the state, the police eventually threw it out. Uh, from the recent investigation, they said there wasn't enough evidence. Uh, you know, I'm not going to argue with it. I'm not going to, you know, I don't know how police investigations work, but I would say there probably is good evidence and documented evidence of the ring. You have Joe Ritchie admitting that they had the boxing ring and you have the medical report saying he had a brain aneurysm from blunt force trauma. You can easily figure it out, but I don't know how the police work. And again, it brings into the question that Alan was very protected by the main state government. I mean, you have the uh, the Senator uh, Bill Diamond, who was a liaison to Elon, who was on their payroll. Um, he's still a senator today, and he stood up for the school, talked about how great it was. And, you know, a big reason for that, why, is because it was bringing a lot of tax money for the state. So you think it was primarily protected because it was just such a cash machine? Oh, definitely. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons. I mean, I don't know how many of uh, how many of your listeners and how many people listening to this have been to Maine. Maine is not a very wealthy state. You know, it's very, very simple people, uh, you know, a lot of farmers living simple lives, um, you know, making do with what they have. Uh, and, you know, Alon came along and Joe Ritchie came along. Joe Ritchie's from New York. You know, he's not a Maine guy. Uh, and he's like, look, you know, we're, we made a lot of money and a lot of that money went to the state. You know, a lot of tax money went to the state. And I'm sure they were ecstatic about it. Uh, so, yeah, you know, a lot was a cash cow for me. There was an interesting interview in your documentary with a teacher that you became close with, Missy Estee. Missy. Yeah. How does a, a person like that exist in an environment like Alon? Uh, you know, look, I will say um, there were people there that, that that were very caring, that definitely did want the best for the kids. You know, Missy, there was a, a staff member there named Jay, very good guy. And I just think they were kind of optimistic about Elan. They were they were curious about its sort of experimental therapy and and wanted to, I guess, be a part of it. You know, Missy, you know, she says, you know, her first day there when she saw a general meeting, she almost ran out the door. But, you know, they talked her into, you know, how good of a place this institution is and how it helps people. And, you know, a lot of people did like her. And, you know, I, I can't write that off. I can't say everybody there was a, a horrible person. And by the way, a lot of the a lot of the staff members there were students before. Most of the staff member there was made up of kids who had gone through the program and worked their way up and graduated and became staff members. But yeah, there, there were there were staff members there that were very good people that just kind of had to go along with the program so they could, you know, stay on. And she seemed very uneasy when she said, I'm sorry if they thought they were abused. Yeah. What did you make yeah. of that? Well, I, 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 Missy was always a very, you know, kind of stoic person and very, you know, confident in herself. And, you know, I'm sure she hears about all the horrible things that happened there, uh, you know, before her time uh, or things that she wasn't aware of. I, I don't know if she brushes it off or, or she just, you know, she just doesn't take part in it because, you know, she did well herself and a lot of kids did like her. But, you know, she, I guess she doesn't want to take responsibility for things that happened to other people and, and for the staff members that did things to other people, which she doesn't have to. You know, I thought it was I thought it was great having a staff member to interview. A lot of staff members didn't want to interview, uh, but she did. And she wanted to, um, I guess, sort of clear the air there. 
I'm, I'm glad I got her. You know, I, I did. I did want to get a lot of the more controversial staff members. You know, there's a lot of staff members that are kind of universally, you know, known to be, a, you know, kind of uh, extreme. But uh, most of them didn't want to be involved. So some student alumni say Alon saved their life. Some say yeah. um, it was one of the worst things that ever happened to them. Some have committed suicide. Uh, some have PTSD. What do you think the the difference of the person who says, I loved Alon, it saved my life, and the person who, who was destroyed by it? I mean, I think there's too many variables to take into account. So when I was sent there, you know, I can only say for myself, when I was sent there, I was 17. I, I was kind of having trouble. You know, I was doing a lot of drugs, failing school. Uh, I got kicked out of school. Um, you know, my, my parents uh, were getting divorced. Uh, there were a lot of things going on. And I realized getting into Alon that, you know, look, life is coming up fast and I'm about to go to college. I need to start getting myself together. So I kind of, I kind of indoctrinated myself into the program. I was, all right, maybe this can help me. And I think to a degree, it did help me kind of structure my life. And it did help me that way. But there were a lot of kids there that I saw that were very young. Again, I was 17. I turned 18 there. I left when I was 19. There were, there were kids there that were like 13 years old, had no idea what was going on. You know what I mean? Had no idea what the concepts of the program were what, you know, what things meant, you know, what emotional growth is. I mean, these are children, you know, some of them came in with toys. I mean, we're talking like GI Joes and stuff, you know, I'm not kidding. And they're sent into this crazy, crazy, you know, behavioral program. And they have no idea how to, how to assimilate. They have no idea that what they did was wrong and why it was wrong. And they just constantly got beat down just constantly. You know, there was two parts of the program. There's the beat down part where you get scolded and they take all those bad values out of you. And the second part of the program where they have trust in you and they instill these positive values. Well, they never saw the, the second half of the program. They only saw the beatdown part. They only got general meetings, just constantly in and out of the corner, day after day, just in rotation, you know, corner, general meeting, you know, scrubbing floors, you know, back into the corner, general meeting, scrubbing floors, back, in, you know, constantly over and over again. I mean, that will take a toll on your psyche. That will make you feel like a horrible person. And by the time you do get out, because eventually they have to release you or, you know, the funding stops, they have to take you out. You're dropped into the world and you only know what was being screamed at you on a daily basis about how horrible of a person you are. And, you know, you live like that and you're maybe I am a horrible person. Maybe I'm just a drug addict. And that stays with you. Uh, yeah, a lot of kids, you know, when they got out, they were they committed suicide or drug drug overdose. A lot a lot of cases. Alan says that they had like an 80% success rate. I don't think that's true at all. I think it was much, much lower than that. You know, it's, uh, it's tragic. That's what it is. So why do you think the troubled teen industry gets so little media attention, attention in general? I mean, I think, again, again, it really has to do with the stigma on mental illness. Uh -huh. It really does. And, and I think it's, it's such a controversial topic. And it's so not much is known about it. You know, I, one way one way people do kind of know about it is Dr. Phil. He sends people to programs, you know, and I don't know the, the legitimacy of the programs he sends them to. I haven't really looked into them. I know some of them are ranches uh, where kids, you know, work on a ranch or, or whatever. And, you know, there's some sort of emotional growth program. And he kind of glosses over it or makes it seem like a good thing. But people just for some reason don't want to talk about it. I think for some, it's also very connected uh, John Kerry, I believe, was involved in it. Uh, Mel Sembler, 
uh, a lot of uh, a lot of very high profile politicians. You know, we, we you mentioned uh, Princess Diane, Nancy Reagan. There were a lot of a lot of high profile people involved in it that probably also don't want information about it to come out. So yeah, there's not a lot known about it, and uh, and that's why it still thrives today. You know, there's still a lot of programs out there. Uh, certainly not as horrific as the 70s, but still unregulated, and still kids are getting hurt at these programs. So. You know, preparing for this interview, I was thinking about just how it's kind of protected by just how brutal and horrible the subject matter is. You know, in some ways, it's so disturbing. It's dark, yeah. That um, in some ways, I think there's a silence around it because people just don't want to read about it or look into it. Uh, How was your film produced? Who produced it? Uh, it was totally independent. So I produced it uh, with the help of, uh, you know, a lot of graduates from Milan. We, we formed a group and, uh, you know, there was some some funding that, you know, the group helped out with. We had an Indiegogo campaign and a lot of people contributed, which is great. Um, but it was entirely independent. You know, I wanted to make the film because, you know, I was thinking about Alan and how interesting of a story it was. I didn't really make it to set out to kind of, you know, as vengeance against Alan. I, I didn't. Um, I don't have you know, any desire to go after them. But I saw that there was very little information, like you said, and very little uh, about these programs. There's barely anything. Searching the troubled teen industry on Google, not, not a lot comes up. There's really no, it's not really any documentaries made about it or, you know, uh, exposés or news programs. There's, you know, there's a few, but not a lot. You know, you, you would imagine for a topic like this, it would be all over the place. Uh, it wasn't. So I thought it was a great thing to put on film and, and so people can start to become aware of it. Yeah, I really have to commend you for getting it, for making it such a powerful film and also for getting it out there because I can't tell you how many times you'd hear, you know, there's going to be a documentary coming about the troubled teen industry yeah. and it yeah. just wouldn't make it, you know. You it's just... a hard topic to really cover and, and it's, uh, it's a really dark topic. And, and, you know, even people that I'm, you know, everybody that was interviewed in my film, they, they all did a great job and really, really put their heart on the table and, and put themselves out there and, and were honest. Uh, all of them were great people and, and meeting them, you know, very interesting people that went, that go to these programs. There is what I've noticed with kids that get sent to these programs, a very high level of intelligence. You know, they're all very smart people and aware, you know, so it, it was great. And I, I, you know, I would encourage other people if they've had, you know, uh, if they've been to programs like this to also, you know, get it out there, whether it's through a book or whatever, um, because there's just not a lot out there about the, these places. And so I hoped with my film, I could at least kind of expose it in a way, and then people can do their research and look more into it and, and help spread the message. Where can people see The Last Stop? So right now you can go to thelaststopfilm.com, and uh, you can purchase it there for video on demand. You can watch it through our website. So that's that's one of the ways to do it, and hopefully we'll, we'll have more avenues coming up to watch it. That's where you can find it, and it, it might be more widely available uh, coming soon. Yeah, I really encourage my audience to check it out. It's a really important film and definitely worth uh, your time and uh, money. Is there anything else that you'd like to say that we didn't cover? Uh, thank you for, for doing this. Uh, I hope my, my hope eventually is that this will kind of blossom and, you know, more news uh, companies will kind of get into it. You know, I kind of made the film almost as like a blueprint a starting point for other people that are interested in covering this. You know, I mean, the, the way that the film plays out is very technical. You know, I want people to understand the program, you know, the way it's supposed to work. 
Um, and I, you know, I'd like to see movies done about it because it really, it really is very interesting. You know, not just the program, but the personalities behind it, the personalities of the people who own these programs and who operated them, who operated them, like Joe Ritchie. You, I mean, that guy was a character in himself. It's, it's just a very, very interesting subject. And I think it connects, even if you didn't go to one of these programs, I think it connects to you in some sort of way because we all had that sort of teenage angst when we were kids and, and those issues and, and, and those struggles. So, you know, even if you didn't go to a program or, or you didn't, you know, have that much of a troubled youth, I think you'll find some sort of connection to it. Thank you so much, Todd Nielsen, for you. getting your feelings off with me. Today. Is, that, oh, is, that, no is, that, is that a correct Alon use of that Alon term? Get your feelings off. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Whenever you were in a group and they were like, okay, you're mad at him, get your feelings off. <laughs> okay. Thank yeah. you so much, Todd Nielsen.